Hello, I'm Jason Solomons. Welcome to Seen Any Good Films Lately, the bumper film podcast, giving you the insights to the newest films in the company of the people who made them, their rich history of influences, and their latest recommendations. That's one of the new contexts of the film. I think now it's more political than it was uh, last July. The meticulousness of the of the operation was reflected in the in the sort of data that accumulated around it. Yeah, there's two fine films up for discussion today. I talked to Finland's Juho Kusmanen about his unlikely romance, Compartment Number no. 6, about Russia and the best train movies. And we catch up with John Madden, director of Shakespeare in Love, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, Mrs Sloan, and now World War II espionage thriller, Operation Mincemeat. We'll hear from those two award-winning directors after I tell you if I've seen any good films lately. I've seen The Northman, I have. And this is the hairy, hoary Viking epic from director Robert Eggers, whose previous films, The Witch and The Lighthouse, have been vigorously championed by his legions of art house fans, leaving me a touch perplexed, I have to admit. But I like a Viking saga, and I was up for this latest one, with a huge cast and the huge pecs of Alexander Skarsgård in the lead. But hang on, when I watched Big Little Lies... That series, in the first series, Nicole Kidman played Skarsgård's beaten-up wife. In this, she's his mum. That's a quick age gap jump, isn't it? I just thought I'd mention it, you know. The Northman, back to that, is hallucinatory. It looks amazing in places and it revels in blood and mud and revenge. The child, Skarsgård, is witness to his father's murder at the hands of his uncle. So it's Ethan Hawke, beheaded by Kleist Bang. And then the uncle then hooks up with his mum, Nicole Kidman, in a story that begat Hamlet. So years later, grown into some kind of WWF wrestling titan, Skarsgård is a mighty warrior who becomes a slave on purpose so he can get on a ship to Iceland and hook up with a sexy slave, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, and there find his murdering uncle who's become a sheep farmer and get his revenge. Hmm... I mean, it's fairly complicated and yet very simple, and Eggers throws everything at this. There's accents and wigs, there's Björk in a headdress, there's mushroom trips, waterfalls, hot spring sex, prog rock album cover art, gore and nonsense. Some of it works, some of it drags into its own parody, and there's a fine line between mysticism and just sheer mysteriousness and madness. I can't say I loved all of the Northmen, but Skarsgård is a beast. Kidman looks at last to be enjoying herself for the first time in ages going over the top. And there's a brilliant tracking shot filming a battle scene that will surely be studied for years to come. That is the Northmen. I am Amleth the Beowulf, son of King Arvand and Warraven, and I am his Still to come on Seen Any Good Films Lately, I talked to John Madden about Operation Mincemeat with Colin Firth and Kelly MacDonald. But let's stay in the snows of Scandinavia, in Finland to be precise, with director Juho Kusmanen, who won a Grand Prix at Cannes last year for Compartment Number no. 6, set on a train journey through Russia. 
as a mature female student leaves Moscow to try and see the petroglyph Stone Age drawings in the very north, in Murmansk of Russia. So she's lumbered in the titular train carriage with this boorish, drunken, vodka-swilling, pickle-munching young bloke. He's a miner looking for new work. And the pair of them are stuck with each other for this long journey. And their relationship gradually thaws, unlike the snows outside. So I talked to Juho Kusmanen about making the film, working in Russia, long train journeys and coping with the threat of the huge bellicose next door neighbour. I started by asking Juho why he was so in love with train journeys and the original book on which his movie was based. Well, there, there was different reasons. Sometimes I went just for do a train journey. And uh, if, you, if you want to travel by train, Russia is the only place you could go from Finland because we are surrounded by by a sea or to there's no like train track to Norway or Sweden no <laughs> so it was kind of a it was the only way to go and and then there's also this possible to do these long distance trains which is a kind of it's also like a like a film it's you're you're not going from place a to place b but you are actually stepping into a <laughs> weird zone and, and then you spend your time there and then you step out. It's, a, it's about the journey, not the destination. Yeah, it's about it. I think the, the destination is always a bit disappointing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the message. Of, that seems to be the message of your film. Uh, yeah, it, it, the more you expect, the more you yeah. will be disappointed. <laughs> I like yeah. that. You know, it's, it's quite existential, but I quite like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's also, it, it has, there are the, these kind of reasons why it is shut also in in Russia because this idea of destiny, this belief in destiny is really strong and you can really see it. And now now we see it actually in a very bad light. How, 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 but, but, how, how do you equate that with, with what's going on now? I'm, I, we can't ignore that your film has a, an unfortunate timeliness that it didn't have when I saw it first, you know, in last not that long ago, really, eight, six months ago, eight months ago. Um, didn't have that same feeling, but now now it does. And you 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 have a border with Russia. I'd be shitting myself to be honest with you, Gino. <laughs> it is really uh, it has recontextualized after this escalation of this war. But actually, this war was already going on when we shot the film. It's been uh, uh, Russia has been like this since '99 mm. when Putin was uh, elected and. Uh, but obviously now the reaction of the world and everything that it's come, this, this war is coming so close and uh, it's it's all over in the internet. We we we, we can't unsee. I, I think it it uh, really it has an effect for our film. Yeah, mm, that's that's not my our film. Uh, the response for our film is not my biggest concern at the moment. <laughs> As no. you said, we have a long border with Russia and <laughs> and there are like terrible events, but. But yeah, I've been also thinking about it because it, it really uh, shadows or adds at least some colors that, that weren't there. Yes, I'm, I, I, excuse me, while I'm talking to you, I'm looking at the map just to check and I don't think I realize exactly how long your border with Russia is. It, it's practically the length of your country shares a border with, with Russia, yeah. basically. And, and, and the width that doesn't, you're surrounded by Russia on the other side, <laughs> almost. Yes, and there are also now now people are very concerned because there are some islands. There are some like big. Uh, they look kind of like 
cottage village like they would be built for people to have vacation mm-hmm. but at the same time now then people are watching them with with uh, <laughs> with new kind of a gaze they also say that actually there are quite many helicopter fields they are like they they, they look more like military based than uh well these are the ones in the right in the north you mean uh no the these are actually between finland and sweden there's this archipelago yes and some of those islands on that archipelago are bought and built by russian oligarchs oh, are they? and they are like helicopter fields and well, off, uh, off turku and yeah nearby turku scary Skerger Savits. Yeah, right? in Corpo, exactly. That's Corpo. The, uh... So I'm, I'm, Google, I'm, I'm Google mapping as we go. Not an area I know yeah. at all, apart from, you know, some Nordic literature. Amazing. Yeah. I, I didn't quite realise how close you were to Estonia and Latvia. And of course, the, your relationship with Russia as a country must go... I, I, I don't think we appreciate quite how bound up with Russia you must be as a nation. Yeah, well, we are... Uh, our our exist, existence has always been... Uh, Shadowed by this fact, 1809, I think we and we were part of Sweden, and then after that, more than 100 years, we were part of Russian Empire, and then uh, 1912, 1917, we we got our independence, and we kept that independence after World War Two, which was different case in Baltic countries, for mm. example, and this has had a big big influence of our country also in our relationship between Russia because we we, we were never occupied by Soviet Union not yet um, not yet <laughs> I'm teasing I, I, we're, we're all we're, we're I'm as worried as you are you know what I mean and, we're, yeah. and I'm in London so it's quite as far what is this something you could London is already occupied I, I know well it, it was occupied <laughs> and now and now they, they seem to be emptied but they're still they're, they're unoccupied yeah. but they're, they're still massive buildings and football clubs obviously we, we look at your film and it, it it's a sort of about you know a clash of sensibilities a clash of cultures a clash of characters male female Russian Finn I suppose you know all of that um yeah. different classes intellectual and instinctive or brutal is that is that Finland is that sort of some the Finnish relationship with Russia were you trying to say something political with that as well or it's not like strictly political and that's one of the new context of the film I think now it's more political than it was uh, last July my aim was to make a film where it deals about this idea of the other the way we see other people the way what is our impression and how it's usually shadowed by our predefined idea of another human being based on his nationality or social class or whatever. And and then through this journey, they start to see through these cultural roles, all those things that are actually disconnecting us. At a certain level, yes, it's about the relationship of Finland and, and Russia and this, this idea to see through the politics, to see behind the... Uh, Iron Curtain, or to see to, to see the other one without it being distracted by this predefined idea of prejudice or mm-hmm. something like that. I, I think in, in the story, in the, in the when they first meet, they are more like Finnish person, Finnish female student, and Russian male. But these are kind of roles that they are carrying. These are roles that that, uh, that they are they are kind of hiding behind these roles. 
Yeah. It's not really what they are. It's not the, you know, human existence is not depend. It doesn't depend on our passport or not even our gender, but it's kind of a learned behavior that we, we adapt. And I think the reason why we so easily adapt these kind of ready-made roles is that it's easy to hide behind it. We don't have to show what we feel. We don't have to show what we are afraid of. And uh, because we are like, yeah, it's a, it's a different uh, way of being if, if, you, if you are like uh, feeling that you are Finnish or European film director. It's a different identity uh, for than being me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you shoot on a, on a train? Actually yeah. on a moving train or you had it in a, as a sort of still studio kind of place? And uh, no, the all the day scenes in the train are shot in a you know public trucks in a real train that we that was rented from a Russian national railroad company, and uh, and then the night scenes in the train they were shot in a train hangar, which is uh, which was it. Kind of like studio. So we, we, we took our train there and then we set up these lights that we were like going behind the window because it didn't make sense to shoot night scenes on a moving train because there was nothing you, you could see con- from the... continuity from the outside at all. But yeah, you, yeah, it feels like a film that needs to ka-ching, 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 go, go yeah. along. What are your favorite train movies? Brief encounter that, that doesn't happen in a train, but in a train station. Yeah, it but does. We, we, we could... But there's yeah. stra- strangers on the train from Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah, that's that's for sure. Uh, runaway, tra- is it Runaway, runaway train? Runaway train by uh, yeah. Con- 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 Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the big existential train movie. There. Yeah. But then there's also Cassandra's Crossing and there's kind of uh, Von Ryan's Express, those kind of thriller thrillers on, on a train. I, yeah. I, love, I do like a train in the movies. Yeah, it is really, it has a certain kind of cinematic quality already. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's a very good location for film. Mm. Did you, did, did you uh, watch did. some of those for, for research or for Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I watched uh, a lot, but actually they were like more like for inspiration. But then uh, when I was watching them, I realized that it, I'm, I'm not exactly interested about the story that takes place like I said, like that takes place in the train. I was more in, interested about the feeling that you have when you are in the train. And then I realized that that in most train films, there is no actually the feeling of being in the train. There there are stories that takes place in the train, but you don't get that that feeling. So that we didn't really use them as a reference for how to make this film. Uh-huh. And actually, kind of anti-reference, like, okay, let's not do it. That they are great films, but we don't want to have this feel that that uh, because most of them, especially the old ones, when you are watching them from like technical point of view, you you, you can sense the studio. Has have your film shown in Russia yet? We had the premiere in Shotsi in this Kinotavr festival, which is a Russian uh, Russian film festival, so it's only Russian films, and then our film was there last October. It, it was a weird experience and it still still is. It was uh, considered as a, the most Russian film in this festival. <laughs> it was only only one week for Russian films. And the kind of funny, funny part is that uh, it's run by a 
producer Alexander Rodniansky, who is Ukrainian oh. guy, but he's a big, big uh, producer, one of the Russia's biggest pr- film producers. He has produced uh, Zvakintsev's all, all his films, and uh, he produced Bean Pole. Oh yes, uh, yes, I, I I've met him. I know I know who you mean. Yeah. I met him with Zvakintsev yeah. when they came here to London. Yeah. And it's it's uh, and now he's obviously he's been criticizing the war very actively in social media and he, he has also fleed. Uh, I don't know where he is at the moment, well, but he's definitely not in in Russia. Is your film a but, Russian film? Do you think do you think your film's a Russian film? Even that it's voted most Russian film at the Russian Film Festival. I always thought it doesn't really have a nation. I think uh, I think that's I, I I think cinema is and it should be. A, our common memory. It's not. It, it's. It's not. Uh, I'm. I'm feeling really annoyed when, uh, even if it's like, for example, we were part in um, Indie Spirit Awards in U.S. and it, it's uh, the international category. It's always like the nation is named, mm. and I was very irritated uh, when it was like Finland Russian film. I think I would have been even irritated even if I would have been only Finland there. Yeah. But especially at this moment when it was Russia was mentioned, and it, and it was also weird because it's actually it's a production between Estonia, German, Russian, and Finland. So I felt that okay, this is this is yeah. weird because they uh, I don't want to pose with the Russian flag. <laughs> and, and you didn't, or you did, in the end? No, I I, I wasn't there. I actually mm-hmm. I asked to re- replace my photo with a black square. <laughs> Uh, because because of the situation that had developed by the time of the Indie Spirit Awards, yeah, yeah, wow. Well, there's a lot to there's a lot going on in your film bef- after the film, <laughs> the most drama after the film before after you made it. Yeah, it's it, it's having a yeah, it has uh, having a new new context. Yeah, like I said, it's not my main concern, but it's it, it's more just interesting to see how it changed. But I think in the best possible case it would be a film that would have a value when we start to build the connections again yeah. because it's it's really uh i think this ability to see the other as human beings and that's just like yeah as animals i think it's it's will be important but where do you sit on this should we have russian movies in show russian movies have russian films at russian festivals i mean Zviagintsev films that people said to me you know oh are there any films i can watch to understand putin's russia and i say you know, have a zvagins of season to watch loveless and elena and the banishment and uh, leviathan and i mean leviathan seemed to be quite an influence on your film i don't know if it if that's true if zvagins uh, had kind of steeped into yours it's it's not i really really Love that film, so maybe, maybe there is. I, I think just the, all the, the things, just the that, final bit, obviously, that in the countryside. Yeah, it's actually shot in the same town. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. So the, the 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 place where they are when this snowstorm is hitting, it's uh, maybe five hundred meters from the house. That the, the, the house was already demolished, but uh, we could see the uh, ruins. The Leviathan house. Oh right, that was a real house, and then they ruined it. What were they? Uh, they actually built it, and then they yeah, they took it down. Wow, it, this is in 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 Murmansk, or is it in in 
Petrosvat. Petro Petrosavotsk. It's called Teriberka. Yeah. Very good. And this is the, it was very, uh, because Murmansk, you can't go to the on the coast. There is no really like a beach. There's mm. because it's a military yeah. area and uh, and it's uh, reserved for military and commercial use. So uh, we had to find a place nearby. And then I was going uh, scrolling this with the Google Earth. I was going on the edges of. Murmansk uh, region and always when I saw that there's some kind of a village I was zooming in and then I found this place Teriberka and that why I was first interested was these boats that I could see it's called the graveyard of ships oh yeah and and then I called to Sergei Kasatova Russian line producer that this I, I want to see this place this looks amazing and then I was really disappointed when he said that actually it's the same place where Leviathan was. I shot. see it, the cemetery of old ships, yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's got loads of old ships. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. That place is so weird. Oh, you'd want to shoot there, Juho. As soon as you see it, you're like, yeah, this is perfect. Yeah. And when you step, when you first go there, the first thing you are going to see is a Chinese coffee. With, really? with, with, uh, with a very ugly Chinese LED light written <laughs> in Chinese really? uh, because it, it, it has become uh, it has become a kind of a tourist attraction it's a, it's a, it's a nice road from Murmansk and there are quite many Chinese tourists in Murmansk Fascinating stuff from Juho Kuzmanen disowning your movie because Russia has become the beast of the modern age fascinating stuff and compartment number six is out in cinemas and on Curzon Home Cinema now. I think you'll like it. Also in cinemas now is Operation Mincemeat, a ridiculous true story of World War II spycraft about a 1943 plan to float a dead body carrying false secret papers into enemy territory, hoping that Spanish spies would feed the information to Hitler and that he would in turn divert his army away from Sicily, thus allowing the Allies to land and begin to turn the tide of the war. Do you know what? It might just work. The main deception we will feed the Nazis will run as follows. Our 12th Army which does not exist, with its 12 divisions, which also do not exist, will invade Greece. Six months from now, on the 10th of July. We will develop numerous tactics to reinforce this deception, bogus troop movements, fake radio traffic. Our agents will recruit Greek interpreters, buy up a sizable cache of drachma, or to take the focus off Sicily, the real target, and the site of the actual invasion that same day. And the centerpiece of this deception? As I just said, Commander, 12th Army is the centerpiece. It's not enough, I'm afraid. The tactics you just outlined would point to Greece, but if we had to get Hitler to divert actual troops from Sicily, given her strategic importance, we would need to provide him with proof of our intention towards Greece. Fake proof, of course. I agree with that. And to that end, um, I've also been working on a deception plan which I've dubbed Operation Trojan Horse. It's uh, the ruse taken from the Trout Memo, idea number 28. Number 28, corpse carrying false papers drops on the coast from a parachute that supposedly failed. The Trout Memo is dead. I believe the Prime Minister has an aversion to fish. Admiral, he did not kill the entire memo. A corpse carrying fake documents. Hmm? 
of all the ideas in the Trout Memo, that one is by far the most precarious. Based on Ben McIntyre's book, it has what they call an all-star cast and a director who's used to handling ensembles in the form of John Madden here teaming up with Colin Firth as buttoned-up Ewan Montague for the first time since Shakespeare in Love. They're also joined by Kelly MacDonald, whose task is to fill in the romantic backstory for this made-believe corpse. Uh, there's Matthew McFadden, Jason Isaacs, uh, there's Simon Russell Beale, uh, Johnny Flynn is the handsome naval officer Ian Fleming, who came up with a preposterous plot in the first place. Who knew that he would turn out to be the writer of the most famous espionage novels of all time? Uh, and there's Penelope Wilton, among many more, including a final appearance for Friday Night Dinner's Paul Ritter. I hosted a Q&A with John Madden at the Chiswick Cinema, his local, and right where he had many meetings with his scriptwriter Michelle Ashford, and I began by asking John if he was familiar with the story, which had already been made into a movie called The Man Who Never Was in the 1950s, or if he remembered the era at all. I was just about old enough for the urban myth to kind of be floating around me when I was growing up, you know, certainly was around long enough and perhaps some others here with but around about the same age as me you know remember the post-war years and and rationing and all of that so so it was in the air and I knew about it. in the moment you mentioned a dead body floating up you know somehow or other that sticks in the mind but I didn't really come into contact with it again until Ben's book and you, you need to know this significantly because you know all of these files were declassified in the mid-1990s 1996 suddenly the, the Operation Mincemeat files became accessible and Ben sort of dived into that and buried himself for three or four years because it was enormous, enormous file. I mean, you know, the meticulousness of the of the operation was 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 uh, reflected in the in the sort of data that accumulated around it. And there was a whole different story suddenly from the one that was currently in well, not in existence, had been in the fifties when the film came out. And so there was a different story to tell at that point. I also asked him about recreating that time, London and Whitehall, in the middle of the war, when life was still being lived as normally as possible under the oddest of circumstances, with pubs and clubs open. You know, 1943 is not a a period of the war that we generally see. You know, it's not the iconic period. So no, no bombs dropped on London in 1943. And so the kind of traumatic... Uh, you know, z- zone of the war was was something people had got used to, and now it was grinding on somewhere else, and with people perhaps not quite so in touch with exactly how the war was developing, and people were eking out their own ways of entertaining themselves uh, underground and under a cloak of darkness. Uh, you know, it's just something else that doesn't crop up that often in these kind of stories. So. It definitely was a sort of in a pocket of its own narratively in, in, the, in the world of sort of World War II cinematic literature, I think. Colin Firth, of course, takes the lead here. So I asked John about finally getting to work with Colin again over 20 years since he played Lord Wessex in his Oscar winner, Shakespeare in Love. And, and a neighbour of probably not just mine, but many people in this room. Um, so we were sort of lobbing scripts over one another's fences for, you know, for the last 20 years because we've been trying to find something that 
our schedules would work with or he'd be interested in is or just, I'd be... Is it just Shakespeare Love that you worked with him? Yes, yeah. yes, although there have been many attempts since, mm. but uh, actually even on both sides, but just didn't didn't kind of work out. You know, he, he always struck me as being absolutely perfect for the role, except in one respect, <laughs> he was 20 years too old to play it. And then I thought, no, wait a minute, that doesn't count because uh, Montague was 41 at the time of the story, um, Chumley, interestingly, was 25. And then I thought, well, 41, I mean, you just have to take a look at, at uh, Montague from that time. I mean, he looks way older than Colin Firth. And I thought, well, anyway, there's, uh, that's not strictly speaking relevant. It's something you get hung up on when you're casting about exact ages. And uh, people watching a film don't experience things that way. It also allowed us to take the Jean Leslie character, who is both true in the story uh, but also has takes on shadings of some of the other characters within the story so she became you know a widow which seemed a much more interesting zone but the answer to your question is i, I went uh, uh, i gave it to colin who then goes through an elaborate process of finding all the reasons why he shouldn't do it uh, which is a, a dance I'm used to, and I certainly respect. Brexit was the top of the list, and various other things. Well, he was uh, worried that this. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, apropos of what you're saying about the framing, you know, I'm very aware of this. The framing at the time, we didn't want to make, you know, a, a Brexit sort of cheerleader piece about the Brits, the doughty Brits, you know, mm. pulling it out of the hat. He was particularly concerned about that. And understandably, although my job obviously was dissuade him from thinking that that was a, a frame the film existed in. But uh, anyway, I, I pulled him in and we talked about it. And Michelle Ashford, the screenwriter, who's, you know, I'm close to, and she was the beginning of the whole uh, project with me, came over and, and we sat talking about it in various Chiswick haunts, including, the, uh, <laughs> including Lara's, or what used to be, so this is a film very much conceived. Yeah, the kebab, the, the kebab shop up here. <laughs> so we could be incognito and, you know, very, so very Operation Mincemeat. Operation, operation Kufta. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Very much. And, um, and then Michelle went away and we, we kind of reconfigured the, the, you know, in many, many drafts, which, again, I'm not apologizing for. It's the most interesting development period I've ever had on a film because of the number of stumbling blocks that were potentially there to do with information and how we were coordinating and navigating the emotional uh, flow of the film as well and then Colin was very you know suddenly had a sort of means of ownership of it uh, I mean not in a stupid way but he just suddenly recognized the character because she understood him and so he came on board and that the weird mystery of the way films work of course suddenly made the film quote-unquote possible I may vomit I may vomit with you. Every uh, piece of intelligence says that the Nazis are waiting for us in Greece. And every piece of intelligence may be the greatest deception the Nazis have ever played against us. Why do you think Churchill still believes this can work? Because he has to. Of course, I opened up the Q&A to questions from the audience and a woman wanted to know if all the actors did their own research on films like this one. Uh, well, as much as they want is the answer to that. Um, I mean, it sort of depends on who's who. I, I don't know how many of them had read the book 
or probably did read the book, but in some cases they might swerve away from that in order to not to clog themselves with too much preconception about who these people actually were. Or So some just like to go from the script, and uh, you know, which obviously has a lot of research and a lot of thought and a lot of calibration. Different actors work in different ways. So to give an example, I don't think Matthew... McFadden is a genius actor who just simply sort of saw that character and then understood a, a way that he could find his way into it. But he was not a person who I think wanted to go into the whole background of it. Whereas J- Jason Isaacs, if anybody knows Jason, is sort of, you know, like a terrier and won't let go of anything and interrogates every aspect of everything. Incredibly productively, I have to say, in this case, because that character is the antagonist, obviously, he plays uh, John Godfrey, and right out on a limb. And he made us really delve into the arguments that were on his side about why he thought it was a bad idea, many of which, of course, now become incredibly resonant with the perspective of Ukraine. I mean, there's a line sitting in there as uh, Churchill heaves himself up out of the chair and he says, Russia is tomorrow's war, you know, and... The whole argument sits in there in the middle of it. So, so different people come at it in different ways is the answer. You know, I don't think it's obligatory. It's an act of fiction. It's about an act of fiction and the creation of an act of fiction. And I encourage people to investigate their parts emotionally. And, and we worked on those a lot collectively. I mean, not exhaustively, but a lot in the parameters of what you can do with a film or what you want to do with a film. But I, I, it's not like, oh, no, no, that's the wrong sort of moustache or what have you, you know. And finally, I wanted to know from John Madden if he'd watched any war films for research and what some of his favourites might be. I certainly f- eventually watched The Man Who Never Was, which I didn't want to while we were working on the script. And I felt both impressed uh, and it's a totally different world, of course. That was about heroes and villains mm. and in a way that this is obviously a more complex place at, at the end of the story. Yeah. But, um, but also relieved, relieved that they made up as much as they did. Because there were some young people in the audience getting noticed as well. I was just thinking, if, if, you know, the war, the war movie is such a staple of growing up and loving the movies. Yes, sort of falling, yes. Know, where Eagles Dare to, yes. you know, carve a name with pride. Well, I just wonder what some of your sort of, you know, touchstone movies for them might be. Well, you know, um, I mean, it, it not, it perhaps it's the obvious one for me, but, you know, uh, uh, Brief Encounter obviously sits right in there. Uh, the Dam Busters sits in there. Any Kenneth Moore movie. I mean, Colin seems to me like a complete, in this film anyway, he actually even looks like Kenneth Moore Kenneth in Moore, it. I mean, Rich um, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, all the Trevor Howard movies. I mean, Bridge Over the Real Quiet. I mean, many, many, many films. And you're absolutely right. They're the ones that stir the blood, particularly for a young person, a uh, young man particularly, I guess they were tended to be celebrate men in mm. those situations uh, uh, Brief Encounter being different of course, yeah, well, and this and this, this film obviously is very infused with that and, and my memories of, not so much my mother because she died when I was young but, but, but though she was in the war, uh, but my stepmother who I was very very close to you know, told me these kind of stories all the time about, you know, the inversion of people's emotional lives and, and sort of alternative lives playing out in a romantic sense in a bubble on their own. 
uh, which totally informs this, and, and was true of the story anyway. It's certainly true of the, the situation with Montague and Jean, mm. for sure. Fascinating. Well, I think I should go and watch some more war movies. <laughs> I do love a war movie, and I love this one. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, relates us to thank Jizik Cinema, also relates us to thank John Madden for a beautiful <laughs> Operation Mincemeat is in cinemas now, and it's really good fun. Although I do worry it's also the sort of jape that will go down really well at Downing Street parties. You know, suitcase of wine and two fingers up at the foreigners and non-doms and all of that. What a wheeze. We stuck it to Jerry. I'm sure they'll love it at Downing Street. On that note, we shall leave you to make up your own minds, but we'll bow out with a quick mention of Benedetta, which is out in cinemas now, the new one from Paul Verhoeven. There was a bit of a scandal at Cannes last summer. It's the lesbian nun movie starring Virginie Efira doing unmentionables with a small wooden figurine of the Madonna. I'll let your imagination run riot on that one. But it outrages Charlotte Rampling's mother superior, who's very scary. Uh, and she does not believe in this nun's claims to having seen and performed miracles. Benedetta has got a soft core aesthetic. And I'd say that's classic Paul Verhoeven. And the film is as daring as it is silly. It's scathing of religion, yet it's leering in its male gaze. It's camp and it's sexy. And in ridiculing dogma, it's almost carry on in tone. But I have to say, stick me in a hair shirt and give me lashes of guilt at Easter time. I rather enjoyed it. It's Benedetta from Paul Verhoeven. So, on those naughty thoughts, we'll go out with some more Ennio Morricone from the upcoming documentary about the composer, Ennio. Uh, This is one of his favourites to conduct. It's from Mauro Bolognini's 1976 film, The Inheritance. Uh, The track is Irene Dominique. It's a theme dedicated to the beautiful 70s art house muse Dominique Sanda. Au revoir. See you next week. (laughs) 